Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. British MPs will tonight, Tuesday, at last get to vote on Theresa May's deal with the European Union on the terms of the UK's withdrawal from the bloc on March 29th. The deal, agreed in November, would keep the UK closely aligned to the EU and obliged it to abide by all the EU's rules for a transition period that would last at least until the end of next year, and perhaps longer while the two sides work out the terms of the long-term UK-EU relationship. The only thing in doubt, however, about tonight's vote is the scale of the defeat Mrs May will suffer. So our discussion today will focus on what happens next, after the Prime Minister's inevitable defeat. Nobody knows for sure what the answer to that question is, but two people well-placed to offer an educated guess are our London editor Dennis Staunton and Europe editor Patrick Smith, both of whom join me now. Dennis, to you first in London. Uh, before we get to that question of where the story goes next, can I ask you something about the, the atmosphere first in, in Westminster today? Is there is there a sense of this being a momentous day? Yes, there's very much a sense of that, partly because there are so many people outside, protesters uh, or demonstrators from both pro-Brexit and anti-Brexit groups, all pretty good-humoured, uh, unlike uh, the scenes that we saw last week. Uh, but it, so there is a sense of uh, of something historic. Uh, it, by you know, depending on on whose estimate you hear, it could be the biggest defeat a prime minister has suffered since uh, Ramsay Macdonald in the 1920s, or it could be bigger than that. And uh, and so uh, so a lot is going to depend, I think, on uh, on how many conservative. Uh, critics of the deal can be persuaded to abstain rather than to vote against it. And so if many of them abstain, that could keep the margin low enough for uh, for Theresa May to save a little bit of her face at least. Now, if it is a, a very heavy defeat, is her deal dead or might she yet go back to Brussels to have one more go at securing some modifications to it? I think it's probably not dead just because it is the only deal uh, in town and because it has been agreed with the European Union. And so I think if you look at the various options that uh, that are available, uh, you know, if nothing happens, Article 50 says that on the 29th of March 2019, the treaties of the European Union cease to apply to Britain, so Britain will be out of the EU. So uh, if nothing else happens, then you get a no-deal Brexit. But we know that there's a, a substantial majority in Parliament which is against a no-deal Brexit. And that majority will probably assert itself one way or another to make sure there isn't a no-deal Brexit. So if you take that off the table, then you're left with various kinds of deals, from Mrs May's deal to uh, various options which are a bit closer to the European Union, like, say, a full customs union or something like Norway, where uh, they're in the single market with an added thing that Norway hasn't got, which is part of the customs union, or you have a second referendum. And I think what you've seen since the beginning of the year is that uh, the air seems to have gone out of the uh, second referendum balloon for so, to some extent. Now, of course, it can come back. But for the moment, I think what we're talking about are various kinds of deals. And I think any deal that you agree with Brussels is probably going to have to include the withdrawal agreement. So everything is going to be a kind of a version of Theresa May's deal. But in terms of the existing deal, I suppose the scale of the defeat is, is um, would, would be a factor here, will it? If, if, if she's sort of within sort of 70 or 80 votes, um, could she possibly go back to Brussels and say, well, actually, you know, if I can just get some, uh, some change on the backstop, um, I, can, I can get these extra 70 or 80 votes we need to get this deal over the line? Yeah, I think she can probably do that. And I think certainly that uh, there's no question, but if, say, the, uh, the backstop had 
uh, unilateral uh, withdrawal mechanism for uh, for Britain, or if it had uh, an end date, a specific end date, then she probably could get the uh, uh, the deal through, or at least there's a pretty good chance that she would. And so she can go and say that. The problem is that. Uh, the European Union has made pretty clear that that's uh, not available. They're not going to reopen the withdrawal agreement. So then what happens, I think, is that you look at what's going to happen in Parliament. And so that, uh, you know, if um, if the pressure in Parliament is uh, to say, you know, you can't get a deal on the basis of Conservative and DUP votes because we've just tried that and it's not working. And so the only way that you can get support for your deal uh, or for some kind of deal is that you go and you get some cross-party coalition with Labour votes and perhaps even a few more. And that's when uh, the, the pressure will be for her to offer something which is closer and say has a cost of Union has maybe more regulatory alignment. And I think if she goes to Brussels with uh, offering something like that and looking for a concession on the backstop, one of the interesting things that happened this week was in the letter from Jean-Claude Juncker and Donald Tusk uh, that came on Monday, one of the things they said, which was a kind of statement of the obvious, but it wasn't necessarily obviously that the obvious they were going to state it, it was that, uh, the, that whatever replaces the backstop doesn't actually have to replicate what's in the backstop. So in other words, as long as it achieves the purpose of the backstop, which is to make sure there will be no hard border, that'll do. Well, if Britain goes back to Brussels and says what we're looking for is something which would not need to, uh, you know, it would basically remove the necessity for a hard border, then it may be easier, uh, and it'll be interesting to see what Paddy has to say about this, but it may be easier for the European Union to offer a bit more flexibility about the backstop, or at least to make some declaration saying that if this was the basis of a deal, that the backstop wouldn't have to be used. Uh, yeah, Paddy, what do you have to say on that point? I think it's definitely the case that uh, if she comes back to Brussels, um, the leaders will say to her, we are willing to negotiate the context of of the um, political declaration, which is basically setting out the the shape of of the future relationship. Uh, We're not prepared to touch the withdrawal agreement, and the withdrawal agreement includes the, the backstop. So the backstop will stay in place. But as Dennis says... If if there is a way of making the backstop less significant, uh, making it less less relevant, for example, if they were to adopt, if the British were to adopt a, a formula which been, has been called Norway Plus, of of um, membership of the single market and the customs union, uh, it would be quite possible for for Brussels to be really quite generous about their language on the backstop, because um, if Britain was to stay in in the European economic area, which is what um, Norway Plus would involve, uh, the necessity for for border controls uh, between um, uh, the Republic and Northern Ireland would would uh, would disappear. Uh, so it is a way forward. I, I'm I'm a bit sceptical about it, however, because um, it would have to be done uh, on the basis that the the deal would be signed before the end of transition. Uh, because otherwise the backstop would have to to kick in. And how you get around um, that, making that a guarantee that you will get the deal done in that time and that the the British are prepared to, if you like, go that far uh, in a deal uh, is is really quite, uh, quite difficult. But would that mean, Paddy, if that scenario were to unfold and let's say they were to start talking about a Norway Plus agreement, would that make the transition period possibly less complicated than it might be. And if you're essentially taking an, 
an off-the-shelf arrangement that's already there and you're, and you're, and you're adding to it or, or, or whatever, uh, am I naive in thinking that the transition period itself might actually, it might be possible actually to reach an agreement before the end of the transition period? It, 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 is, it is entirely possible. And, they, and, they, and there's already an agreement on that they can extend the transition period if necessary beyond the, the two years, which it's the 21 months, which it's now scheduled for. So all of that does offer opportunities, but it does um, it doesn't completely get rid of the, of the backstop issue, and it also does mean, and this is the big problem for May, that she has to go back on on her two key red lines, which are the customs union and and membership of the single market. It it will be a, a quite a humiliating um, U-turn for her, and and that's why I would be would be concerned that. They actually, the British are not going to be sufficiently ambitious uh, when they go down that particular negotiating line uh, to meet the the requirements of of um, uh, uh, Norway Plus. Dennis, whatever um, avenue Mrs May does seek to pursue after uh, the vote the vote tonight, um, is it increasingly likely you think that the UK w- will end up seeking an extension to an extension to Article Fifty? In other words, to delay the Brexit until after March twenty ninth. Yes, I think uh, it, it certainly does seem likely, although uh, they, they will have to offer some reason uh, beyond just not being able to make up their minds how to, uh, you know, how to get out. And so I think that, you know, that uh, it certainly is likely that they're, they're, it's quite clear they're not ready to leave uh, on the 29th of March unless there is a transition arrangement in place. It's also getting very close, even if the withdrawal agreement was approved in Parliament. You then have all this implementation legislation which you've got to get through. And so it's, uh, the, the timetable is getting tight no matter what happens. So I think it is likely that uh, they will seek um, to have some kind of an extension. I think the other thing, just to go back to what Paddy was saying about the complications, the other complication, of course, with any move that Theresa May makes towards uh, a softer Brexit is that it alienates a big section of her own uh, backbenchers and indeed possibly members of her government. And so that then create, creates a, ba- a major difficulty just in terms of governing. So what you know, if um, you know, if she has, if she has to find her majority for Brexit by going across the aisle, where does she find the majority for day-to-day governing? And just in the kind of an atmosphere that you've got here, which is likely to get more feverish rather than less, uh, you know, the the threat to her is no longer obviously to her leadership of the Conservative Party because she won a confidence vote that keeps her safe for twelve months, but the threat is a, a vote of confidence in the government. And so, and the and the majority could be formed by two groups of people, really, along with the with the opposition themselves. And that would be either uh, a group of conservative MPs who would decide that they would have to vote uh, against the government in a confidence motion, rather than risk a no deal Brexit if she decided that actually she was going to plough ahead towards a no deal Brexit. And there are certainly uh, there are a number of uh, conservative MPs who would be uh, feel strongly enough to actually vote down the government in a confidence motion rather than have a no deal brexit and then the other group of course would be very hardcore eurosceptics who might find that uh, you know if they thought they were being pushed into norway plus that this really was Brexit in name only. And some of these people have actually said that her deal as it is, Theresa May's deal as it is, is worse than remaining in the European Union because you couldn't get out of her deal as far as they're concerned. So so I think that you know all of this is going to happen 
in an atmosphere of great uncertainty politically in Britain. And there has been some speculation that Jeremy Corbyn could move his no-confidence motion even even tonight or immediately after after the vote. Is that is that likely or possible, do you think? Or how, how soon do you, how fast do you think he plans to move? Yeah, he's being a bit sort of gnomic about exactly when. He says, you know, wait until you'll see it. It'll be very fast. It'll be very soon. So there is an expectation. It could be uh, Tuesday night. It could be Wednesday. Uh, but it's certainly expected to be quite soon. Now, he's got a problem there because, uh, you know, it, first of all, it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, she's very likely to uh, prevail in a confidence vote. So he would lose the confidence vote. And according to the motion on Brexit that was agreed by the Labour Party conference last year, what he's got to do then is to uh, explore other options, including a second referendum. And he has made increasingly clear, uh, and most recently on Sunday, that a second referendum is not his favourite option. He would still prefer a negotiated solution. But if he's not the government, then it's hard to see how he leads that negotiated solution. But it's, but you know, so he so he's going to be under pressure from a lot of his members, not just his MPs, but more particularly uh, the Labour Party membership and specifically the very young members who have been his staunchest supporters. They want a second referendum and they want to reverse Brexit. And so he's got got uh, quite a difficult course to manage too as soon as this vote happens. And, and of course, we know one of the reasons that the reason that the Labour Party has refrained from. Um, moving a confidence motion up to now has been they know that they, they, they can't win it. But I'm wondering what has changed in the calculations in the last few days to make Corbyn now start talking about, about you know, taking this action? Well, because he sort of had to in that uh, he was under pressure to do it in December. And then he said, no, um, you know, she's pulled the vote. So we're going to wait until the vote actually goes to Parliament. And so his argument would be once uh, Parliament has uh, heavily rejected the centrepiece of her governing uh, program and uh, and of her Brexit strategy, then uh, you know it's quite clear this government doesn't have the confidence of the House and it can't really fulfil its obligations as a government. And so that's the strongest argument to make in terms of a confidence vote. So he's doing it, I think, uh, you know, this week, not because he particularly wants to do it as soon as possible, but because uh, the pressure is so great uh, from from his membership and from his MPs. And so he just really has to. And, and Paddy, to come back to that question of a possible extension and a request by the UK to extend Article 50, what view would the EU and, and other member states um, be likely to take of such a request? Well, I think that they're making the point very firmly that it must come as a request from, from Britain. It's simply not going to be offered by them. Um, there, there are two issues, really, in relation to it. One, um, well, firstly, of course, it has to be agreed by unanimity by, the, by all 27. And it seems to me to be extremely unlikely that a unanimous agreement to an extension will happen if it's simply... Uh, on the basis, as, as Dennis was saying, just to give the, the lads a bit more time, uh, they will make it conditional on there being a definitive outcome of, of any extension. In other words, that if, if they, um, that the British will be able to say, um, when we undergo the process that we are proposing now, you will either have yes or no, and we will either leave or stay, and there won't be any more argument about it. And that's, that's a difficult sort of statement for them to make, but I think that they'll have to try and convince leaders that there will be a definitive result. I also don't think that they're likely to be supportive of what has been speculated in the British press as an extension to as far as July. My my own feeling is that it, it'll probably be uh, a couple of months at the, at the most because um, nothing 
is added to the process by giving more time. There are, it doesn't resolve any particular problems. And I think they're acutely aware of the fact that they, they've sort of been here before and every time they've given the British more time, the British have just used the opportunity to de- de- delay making decisions. There's also the um, another factor, of course, the European Parliament elections are coming up soon. I, I presume that would also be a complicated, complicating factor, wouldn't it? It does complicate things uh, considerably. I mean, it, it's um, something that's more preoccupying, I suppose, to MEPs than to the general public. But the, the reality is that if Britain is still a member of the European Union uh, by the time of the European elections in May, then uh, they will be expected to elect um, by whatever means, a contingent of MEPs. But more significantly for the uh, other MEPs is is the fact that the, the divvy up of seats that was to come with Britain's departure, which included two for Ireland, will not then take place. And Ireland will lose the two extra seats, which um, they, they are supposed to get. So some kind of a formula will have to be reached um, about that. Um, but at the end of the day, that is, is not a hugely... Uh, important problem in in constitutional terms or in political terms. It is something that that people will find their way around. So it it, it could be overcome. Um, Dennis, again, just to go back to what we can look out for over the next few days and in in Westminster in particular, as a result of a a controversial amendment passed by the House of Commons last week, and it was controversial because people on the government side believe John Burke or the Speaker shouldn't have allowed it to be tabled in the first place. But as a result of that amendment, Theresa May is required to come back to the House of Commons by next Monday with a new plan if she loses her vote tonight. Just remind us, what exactly is she required to do by by next week? So within uh, three sitting days, uh, parliamentary sitting days of uh, a defeat tonight, uh, she would have to come back, and that would mean on Monday, she'd have to come back to Parliament with a motion uh, setting out what she plans to do next. And then uh, within a week of that motion being tabled, uh, there would be a debate on that motion and MPs would be able to amend it. And so what they would be able to do would be, uh, for example, to table amendments saying uh, we want to rule out a a no-deal Brexit or an amendment in favour of the Norway option or the Norway plus option or whatever, or a second referendum. And so they would be able to test various options uh, that are alternatives to her proposal as to whatever she wants to do. And so they would have the capacity essentially to take control of the uh, of, of the the direction of the Brexit process. There's another possibility which uh, some uh, rebels have been discussing, sort of cross-border group of MPs, which would allow um, the backbench MPs to take control of the parliamentary timetable. This would be a major revolution because really since the 1880s and a period you know very well yourself, Chris, during the uh, Home Rule uh, dramas, uh, in response to... Chance for me to plug my, my book here, yes. Dennis. No, carry yes, on. We can, we can mention the title of your book if we can remember it. And uh, so, uh, <laughs> anyway, when, when Parnell was uh, was busy, uh, you know, filibustering, etc., in response to that, they introduced Standing Order 14. And Standing Order 14 said that the government business would take precedence over any other business. And what that has done is that it gives the executive uh, control of the parliamentary timetable. And there's a move that would suggest that temporarily, maybe even just for a day, that this standing order would be suspended. And so that would allow uh, the, uh, the some cross-party book, uh, group of backbenchers effectively to take control of the parliamentary timetable and ensure that there would be parliamentary time for whatever legislation uh, a majority of the House would be ready to support. 
And, and I mentioned John Burke there, the House Speaker. Could, could he have a significant role to play in, in any of this? Yes, he will have a very significant role because uh, he really is, is allowed, to, he's got uh, pretty much absolute authority in terms of interpreting the rules of the House and uh, and also setting new precedents as well as, uh, as choosing which ones to follow. And he's already, in fact, today on Tuesday, had an important effect even on what's going to happen later because he it was up to him to choose which amendments would be voted on. There were about a dozen amendments uh, which were available to him. He's chosen four of them, and none of those four are going to be amendments that are particularly helpful to the government. There were two in particular that the government hoped would be uh, would help to sort of blunt the the size of their defeat. Uh, one of which was by uh, it was from a conservative backbencher, Andrew Murison, who would say, "We accept the deal." On the basis that, uh, on the condition that uh, the EU adds a legal codicil saying that uh, the backstop would end by the end of 2021, so he hasn't called that uh, that particular uh, amendment, and so the amendments uh, that he has called are not nearly as helpful to the government. So, so he's he can play a huge role, and his uh, you know his practice in the chair has been to favour backbench MPs and uh, the House, as he would put it over the executive. And he sees his role as being uh, an advocate for parliament against the executive. So I think you could be uh, pretty sure that whatever he does, it's going to uh, follow that basic precept. Okay. Well, Dennis, notwithstanding the Speaker's um, efforts there in, in reducing the number of amendments to be taken, I think we're still in for a long night tonight. So we'll leave that there for now. Thanks for that. Dennis Taunton in London and Patrick Smith in Brussels. That's all for this week. Um, for more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. <laughs>